Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello, everybody. This is Brown People, the show where I just talk to people who I like, who just happen to look a little bit like me, and people who are a bit either British or American or sometimes even maybe a little bit Jamaican. So today I'm speaking to Denise Hamilton, a renowned diversity and inclusion leader and founder of Watch Her Work, a remarkable individual with a somewhat of a unique background. She was born in Jamaica. Denise grew up in New York and later pursued her education at a Christian college in Texas, shaping her values, or at least helping to shape some of her values and perspectives. Coming from a single-parent household, as a middle child of two brothers, Denise developed a resilience and a sunny disposition and an independent spirit, fueling her passion for work. So we're going to torture about all these bits and bobs. And can I just say, she's wasting on a podcast. She's easy on the eye which belies the fact that she was a former model and she's got a good pair of lungs. She's an ex-singer as well. Denise Hamilton, welcome. How are you today? I am so good. I'm so glad to be here with you today. You're born in Jamaica, but that accent isn't very yard, is it? it it's, <laughs> what are you? Do you feel more American than Jamaican? Are you Jamaican-American? You're a mixed match of two. What is it? I, I'm Jamaican. I came here very young as a child, but grew up in Flatbush in Brooklyn, a predominantly Caribbean neighborhood. So the values and ideals of Jamaican culture have been pounded into me by my family and neighbors in my growing up years. And I take them through the world as I navigate all the, the realities, all the things that come my way. One of the things I'm always amazed by is my parents coming to New York City in the middle of the winter in January. Can you imagine coming from beautiful, sunny Jamaica and landing in New York in the freezing, freezing cold? And I just, I'm in awe of the temerity, of the courage, of the, just the grit that it takes to navigate an entirely new culture. Yes, we all speak the same language. We're so different up here between our ears. While I've been raised in the American context, I have an incredibly deep appreciation for immigrant culture and the kind of person that will get up and move. Talk about the people that want to get up and move. One thing which I wasn't necessarily aware of before I did my series, How to Make a Conquer the World, was that there's a little bit of beef between African-Americans and Jamaicans. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I got to the United States, I think I fought every day in, in, in grade school because of the accent. I think there's just I, I have a deep sympathy for African-American culture, like the challenge, the constant 
diminishment of the African-American experience and people in the borders of the United States. And when you come from a predominantly Black country like Jamaica, there's a whole set of baggage that you just don't have. And you walk into this American context, you walk into this American experience, and you have a story of America that fuels your belief in your opportunity to grow and excel and achieve that unfortunately people born here have a, 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 a contradicting story of what their experience actually is in America. And so that's going to create friction, right? We, we have different stories of what our lives look like. Mm. And it's been interesting to me to watch the reconciliation of those stories over time and every generation. Now, I think it's really like Africans coming over and African-Americans tend to have that that tension now where when I was young, it was Caribbean people that had that tension with African-Americans. But I understand it. I understand it. I don't, I, I, and I hope I've done my part over the years to bridge it. We gave them Biggie. What else do you want? <laughs> what else that can we true. do? And, and Will I Am, and Will I Am, yeah. and Colin Powell, Kamala Harris. So many, many people. Exactly. Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell's that is Jamaica. Like we have blended into the American experience in a way that has been contributory. We've I, added more than we've taken. There are so many Jamaican Americans or Jamaicans that I'm beginning to wonder are there any actual African Americans left? So I understand the beef in that regard. But Okay, so here's a quick test for you. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson or Gregory Isaacs? Wow, you have to think about it. You Michael think- Jackson, but he's complicated. He's very complicated. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> Let me say Prince or Gregory Isaacs. Oh, Prince. I think Prince was like... Prince. Is, well, you've gone. He's you a, he's a musical area. genius. He's just, it's different. It's not fair. I like them both, but right. no. I, I saw Prince play live once mm-hmm. and he played 20 different instruments. And I just was like, this was, is the most incredible musician that has lived. So I'm sorry. I'm a diehard Prince. All fan. right. Okay. So Prince is somewhat of a savant when it comes to yes. music, right? Yes. So how about this? Sly and the Family Stone or Toots and the Maytels? Toots and the Maytels. That was a correct answer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, the easy one. you grew up in a single parent household. What happened to dad? Dad, as, as so often happens when an immigrant family comes to the United States, the women are consumed with the care of the children and of succeeding and of making a home. And my father grew up, his mother died when he was 11, I believe, and and grew up extremely poor. So coming to the United States and being exposed to all of the things of the United States, he kind of lost his way a bit and they ended up divorcing. And we were raised by my mom. After they divorced, were you still in contact with your dad? Not very well, occasionally, not in a way that is consistent. And I probably talk to him more now than I've ever talked to him throughout my entire life, which is which did, is strange. <laughs> did you feel that 
gap when you were growing up? I think so. I think it's weird. It's not traditionally, I think people would say they've had the gap of a father. I probably had the gap of a cheerleader in that my mother and father have very wildly different personalities. My my mother is a traditional Jamaican mother, a little abrasive, a little do the chores, get the things done. She's very task oriented. And my father was the cheerleader. You can do it. You can be it. He he thought I walked on water. He still does to this day. He was the first person to read my book and he'll call me and quote my book and tell me everything that the book says. And we have these long conversations about all of the moving parts and he's um, so enthusiastic. So I think I missed that personality in my formative years. But I think that we are resilient people that kind of figure out how to navigate the cards that are given to us. I probably don't look at the world in terms of what was absent as much as what are the ingredients you have? You have to make dinner and these are the ingredients that are on the counter. Go. Not so much of, boy, I wish I had turmeric. (laughs) I I don't think like that. I think of what do I have? Go. So you, you said that you intellectually, you and your father are similar in terms of your emotional disposition, which parent do you think gave you your kind of the glass is always half full disposition? Was that also? I think I am an anomaly in my whole family. (laughs) I think there's a a cocktail that is Denise Hamilton that is a combination of so many different things, right? First, I would say the earliest, most profound is the immigrant experience. Coming, believing, choosing, creating, like all of that energy, doing, seeing my mother on a very low income, like, work hard and ultimately buy a house in New York City. I was in college, but I got to see her do that journey, something that most people would have said is impossible. And then I went to the neighborhood bad schools up until junior high school and then went to Stuyvesant High School, which is the, at the time, was the number one high school in the country, public high school in the country. So got to see this experience, the Black experience in New York, and then see this privileged, affluent experience in New York and got to reconcile that and know those people. And then went to college, a Christian college in Abilene, Texas, teeny tiny little town from my perspective coming from New York, and got to see like how those people were different and how they took the cards or the ingredients that they had been given and how they crafted a life for themselves. And in, in what way were they different? In what way? Oh, apart I, from the fact that you're big city sophisticated you. I was big city. I was so fancy. And I would sit with these people and they had been to Prague and they had been to Rome and they had been to Greece and they had gone on safari. And I was like, I thought I was a cosmopolitan one, but because they lived in a city that had a very low cost of living, they traveled the world. And I largely lived in New York and the world came to me. 
And so I got to learn a little bit about this idea of crafting the life that you want, right? Like there, there's a beautiful line in Grey's Anatomy. Attica Locke is a Black writer, television and film writer that I'm obsessed with. I think she's so incredibly talented. And she has a line in Grey's Anatomy where, she, where the two characters are, are talking about a choice that one of the people had made. And she says, you didn't make good choices. You had good choices. And I think that was so powerful. Of So often we criticize people because they don't do the things we would have done or we think they should have done when they didn't have the same variables that we had. They didn't have the same suite of options, right? And so I think in my life, I've tried to create as many options as possible so that I have a lot to choose from. And I have developed a sympathy for people that have a limited range of options. And at, when I think about my purpose and how I help other people, it's to expand what's possible. That To me, that's freedom. It's not even having the ability to vote. If you can vote, but you have two terrible options to vote, you're not really voting. You don't have any options. So how do you increase that range of options? I've lived in New York, LA, Miami, now I live in Houston, Texas. Like I've lived all over the country. You have my and I know it's very troubling these days. <laughs> and people are just wildly different. And it's really important, I think, to take the time to understand and perceive those differences if you have any hope of mm. communicating with them. Because they just don't think like you. And the biggest mistake we make is thinking that we're all the same. Mm. We're all equal, but we're not the same. Oh, no. A, a cactus and a ficus are both plants. But if you give them the same amount of water, one of them is going to die. Really fascinated about the subtle differences and i suppose that's the reason for the podcast between black brits and then between uh, black americans um and i think and you, you were touching on it but you used abilene texas which really got me thinking about this is that if i have a slight criticism of some of my african-american friends mm -hmm. it is that they equate African-American with being the only black experience. And there is a whole world outside of the United States. And a lot of that world does also encompass black folks. And I think Jamaican Americans in, in a weird way have a foot in, in both camps. And, and you at the very start, you said it, they come from a lot of the identity of, of Jamaicans is built around the fact that 96% of all Jamaicans are black. So it's a different dynamic, isn't it? It's a different dynamic. And just because you've lived in a big city in America doesn't necessarily mean that you are worldly wise. You can be incredibly switched on to, to American politics and American culture, but that isn't the only lens to view things. And you and I met through a thing called Clubhouse. And that's the thing that really struck me speaking to a lot of African-Americans. When they say black, they actually mean African-American. And even when they're speaking to other black people, they still talk about a black experience and not noticing that difference. So I do want to come back to your career in that it seems on the face of it, 
nicely all over the place. Bit of modeling, bit of singing. Who do you sing with again? Eldebarge was my, that he was my main artist. And I sang, like I did Arsenio Hall with him. And I did, got to be Stevie Wonder, did Stefan in Vogue. Yeah. <laughs> you. So we're going to come back to that. Then there's the modeling thing as well. All right. Uh-huh. But you sound like some incredible overachiever before then you go on and you set up your company and you run. You do your TED talks and your this talks and your that talks and whatever. Right. It must be difficult. It must be difficult mm-hmm. when to, for people to be in your orbit because you're doing this and doing that. But here is the point, right? And this is the wonderful thing about a podcast and a podcast that I'm editing. I'll just go wherever I want. So we met on Clubhouse. Are we friends? Does it count? How could you encapsulate our friendship if we've never actually physically met? Can you be friends with somebody online? Is I suppose is really what I'm asking. I think you absolutely can, especially in the clubhouse context, because you spend so much time really talking, right? I've had some of the deepest conversations of my life on clubhouse, right? Just because of the reduction of friction, the ease of conversation, it's what's happening right now, right? It's taking time. I think friendships take time, right? And so that's the main ingredient. And so... Don't you need a, let's just nip out and go and have a quick drink? No. Don't you need a, I need to cry on your shoulder um, and you need to turn up physically? No. That person. No? I don't think so. I don't think so because um, I'm, I have turned up physically. I'd lo- I've met a lot of my friends that I've met online. I've met them in person. If I was coming to London and you were there, I would be like, Brookfield, and we would hang out, right? The foundation is laid for the physical in-person content and contact. But I don't know that's the critical ingredient. I really think the critical ingredient is time. It's time spent actually talking to each other, understanding how does that other person think? What makes them laugh? Do they, too, as I do, enjoy candy corn? Right. Like it's understanding all of these little details about them. And in a situation where you get to see them in so many different conversations, which translates to so many different situations. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like they tell you don't get married until you've gone on a road trip with that person. Clubhouse has been like the ultimate road trip, like locked in the car, talking for hours and hours. It's very hard to hide who you actually are because it comes out your impatience your frustrations your joys your happiness your and i have i have one of my best friends of all time passed away a few years ago very young but he was one of those football guys who watched football every single weekend and the world stopped because the game was on and he would have three or four guys come over and watch the game with him and i was sitting i'm talking to him and i said Hey, how's Rick doing with his divorce? And he was like, Rick's getting divorced? No idea. They spent a ton of physical time together, but they knew nothing about what was going on in each other's lives. It's just That's just men, though, isn't it? But I, I, I do love that, though. Why did you fall into the big rabbit hole? That was That is Clubhouse. What was it about that that you felt that you could do a whole load of listening and some talking? I'm obsessed with people. I love people. I love the variations, the slight 
differences, the nuances. I love the fact that we can look at the same thing and literally come away with different perspectives on it. I, I love the contrast between an optimist and a pessimist and how that interplays. And I'm also keenly aware of the inadequacy of my education, right? And what I mean by that is that we all have a tiny piece of the story. Nobody's got the whole story. Everybody's got a tiny piece. And I love the assemblage of all of our pieces to come up with a more um, intact version of the story, right? I, I love watching that process of, I thought it was pink. No, actually, it's really red. No, I really thought it was purple. Why do you think it was purple? In 1933, like I love those conversations because I love truth and I want to move closer and closer to the truth. That's why I'm on earth. How do we get closer to the truth? And I'm keenly aware that I don't have it. I have a piece of it and I'm eager to hear what your piece is. And that assemblage is so easy on Clubhouse that it allowed me to meet and interact with so many people that were just completely different. I had my first trans person that I was able to sit and have a two-hour conversation with and ask any question that I wanted to ask. My first sex worker that was like, hey, this is what I do. And I was like, now I have some questions, <laughs> right? Just building up kind of my experience, creating a bigger, broader, more truthful truth is what the journey is. And so Clubhouse was an amazing experiment for that season of my life. And I speak about it in the past tense a little bit because I do think the experience has changed. Mm. Had the what did the inmates have taken over the asylum, but it has been for my life absolutely transformational because it also allowed other people to meet me, right? And, and broke you, down those barriers. And you were, if that's the right tense, are were one of the stars uh, of that platform. But with all this, you've been interested in people and your work on diversity and inclusion. Do you have enough time for family? If you're so interested in people, can those people who may be the closest to you sometimes think, Denise wasn't here today. And I don't mean physically, emotionally. No, because like my daughter and I, my daughter actually runs my business. So I see my daughter every day. <laughs> you remember I said earlier that I'm all about increasing my options. I think you build the life you want to have. You build it. You choose, right? And so I I never want that space with the people that I love the most. I all I cultivate the experiences for us to spend time together and travel together. We just actually got back from Greece and people are like, "You're going on vacation with your daughter?" I'm like, "Yep." daughter's going, my husband's going, my daughter's roommate, her mother. Like I believe in creating and cultivating those experiences where you connect and spend time together. I think for me, I just, I don't take any of it for granted ever. My daughter was catastrophically ill from age 11 to age 16, like wheelchair bound as, as sick as a child can be. And that experience really has shown me, A, that how important 
optimism and perseverance are, but then B, how much of your life is up to you and how much isn't, right? And we talk a lot about what isn't up to you, but I really like to talk about what is up to you, like how you forge through, how you plan, what you think about, what you believe. And so I am the architect of my life. I do exactly what I want to do. Now, at the ripe old age of 52, that's a little bit easier than when you're 25. I say that anybody can do it, but I think anybody can work towards it. I'm just, what do you want your every day to look like? Who do you want to be a part of this? But Denise, didn't you say to me at the start of this that you came up that Grey's Anatomy quote and it was somebody made, they didn't make good decisions, they had good decisions. Good choices, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't just have a sunny disposition and a can-do spirit and are just like, you know what, as as the Buddhists would say, all life is suffering. And if you mm-hmm. accept that, you're, you're, you're on the up, you know. The, the reason, there is something um, um, about you and your being able to look at every cloud and to see that silver lining and utterly to go for it. And it is really incredibly magnetic. But you have to take us very quickly from finishing that Christian college where you discovered that just because you're from big city New York you are not that sophisticated shall we say com- compared to others through to singing with Elder Barge through to I don't know where the modeling comes in through to real estate through to then having the, this career now can you do this can you do this in, I'm looking at matter of time here. Now, we've been talking for 30 minutes, okay? Right. Can you do this in five minutes? Give us that throughput, and then I'm going to jump in and, and ask you some really pertinent, hard-hitting, thought-provoking questions. I can say, I can do it in one sentence. No, no, no. Because I always listening, say yes. The listeners. <laughs> That's the answer. People want some other answer. I always say yes. That's it, the answer. It's not a complicated what? journey. I always say yes. Commercial real estate is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Commercial, when I worked in commercial real estate, it was one half of 1% any ethnic minority. I was the first black person to be in my role in, the, in a six-state region in the top 10 companies. And it was intimidating, it was scary, it was aggressive, it was hostile, but I did it and I thrived. It's funny you say about always saying yes. Friend of mine, beautiful woman of South Asian heritage, and she was doing online dating for years. And she said, that wasn't going really well. And she realized it's because of who she was choosing. And she said, Went back on it, and I said yes to everybody who wanted to date me. Now I'm married, two kids. That's the. There's a whole lot you could say, but the truth of the matter is, you have to put yourself in the path of opportunity. Mm. You gotta say yes. Do you think us as black folks sometimes, not even sometimes, because I know the answer to this, but we're having a conversation here that we don't put ourselves in the way of opportunity because of 
actual systemic racism, discrimination. So maybe sometimes we don't look at as opportunities actually as opportunities. We take this generational trauma, which is obviously macro, and we take it sometimes into the micro. And a thousand percent. But that's like asking me, are you scared to touch the stove after you touched it five times and it burned you? It's not crazy. It's not irrational. We're not pulling it out of the sky. Right. I, I, I get it doesn't matter what neighborhood I live in Houston. I get pulled over by the police. A police officer pulled me over in my three blocks from my house and said, what brings you to this neighborhood? Is there a neighborhood that I'm not allowed to drive in? In, in this city, in this country, if a Swedish person didn't speak a word of English, but was blonde hair, blue eye, rented a car at the airport and was driving in that neighborhood, they would belong more than I belong. They would not be asked what brings them to this neighborhood. He, I said, I live in this neighborhood. He looked at my driver's license and said, you live in this neighborhood. What's your address? He was testing me. This is your car. People aren't making this up, right? I get followed in the store. I get um, graded differently on my performance. I get labeled for asserting what is appropriate, an appropriate grievance I have to have in the back of my head. Are they going to think I'm an angry black woman, right? They're not making it up, right? The thing is, can you manage the, the disappointment of the past and not allow it to rob you of the possibility of the future. That is a magic trick of Herculean bounds, but that's what we have the opportunity for. That's what's possible, but it is not an easy task. And I don't fault people for the logical, the logical deduction that comes from their actual experiences of their lives. They're doing what makes absolute sense. What we're asking them to do is to be a little bit crazy. Crazy like a Jamaican that moves to New York in the middle of January. <laughs> you need a little bit of that crazy to push past what your brain is telling you is possible and to believe that something bigger and more incredible is possible. I think that when we have conversations about opportunity and how we as Black people address or connect with those opportunities. We need to speak about ourselves with love <laughs> because we've earned that. We've earned a little bit of kindness. And I would say <clears throat> sympathy it sounds like a terrible word, but it is I'm deeply sympathetic for the challenge. And it's a challenge that's very hard to to um, quantify, quite frankly, because if you don't live in the skin, you don't understand the multiple times of day experience of it. People are, oh my gosh, George Floyd is murdered. They saw the video that oh, that is terrible. And they're crystal clear on that. But they're not as clear as the person crossing the street because you're walking towards them or the person sco scooting into the very corner of the elevator because you just got in the elevator or saying things like you're pretty for a black girl, or following you in the store. The actual experience of it is, it's so all encompassing, it's so frequent that it's hard to 
communicate it to somebody that doesn't live in the skin. I extend a lot of love and a lot of patience and a lot of mercy. How have you become a professional speaker for diversity and inclusion? How did that happen? Obviously, you have this, I was going to say, a unique uh, view on being a black American. Being a Jamaican American who grew up in America is actually not that unique. But it, but it, but it gives you a slightly different perspective from a, Definitely. a modal African American. That is no doubt. But considering the real estate, the modeling, the, the singing, etc., how did that happen? And why did that happen? Why did I end up speaking about these topics? I believe almost every one of the opportunities that I've had in my life, and I've been able to do some incredible things, right? Just extraordinary things. And it has been 100% because somebody reached out to me, somebody tapped me, somebody said, hey, have you ever thought about this? hey, I want to bring you into this environment. I had been a an executive. I worked it as in marketing. I ran South Florida for America Online. I worked at CBRE as a tenant rep broker for only Black person and actually went on to win. We had a contest, like a pitch contest for all the top brokers, up and coming brokers, so the younger brokers in North America. And I won as the best presenter in the entire company. I quit the next week. That's another story. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you another time. But I've been able to step into these spaces and have these incredible experiences. But every single time it's been because somebody helped me. Somebody reached out, somebody encouraged me. So after I had been in corporate for a long time, people started inviting me to speak hey, would you come and do a presentation here or there? Would you be on this panel? Would you moderate this? And I would do it. And I would post it on social. And one of my friends called me and she said, oh my gosh, you're doing so great. You're everywhere and you're getting paid, right? And I was like, paid? You get paid for this? And she was like, yeah. And sat down with me and walked me through the entire industry and how you structure it and what was appropriate and what made sense and what didn't. And it was life-changing. Literally life-changing. I shifted. I, I set up my company. I started organizing things and it completely changed my life. I always reflect on that experience and um, try to be that person for other people, right? Because you don't know what you don't know, right? This whole thing again about do you see the full realm of options and have you created a space that you have good choices to do that? You got to talk to people. You got to talk to people that have been in the places that you want to go. And you have to be open and stay coachable because sometimes you don't even have any idea of what's possible. And somebody else comes along and breaks it down for you. That coachable uh, word is a wonderful one. Are you still coachable? What's the last thing that you learned? And I don't mean in, in this sphere. You can be anything. What's the last thing you learned? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. What's the last thing you realized that you didn't know? I, oh my gosh, that's so weird because it was yesterday. <laughs> I am doing a lot of research right now about poverty. Mm-hmm. And I see poverty very much from my lens, from the from growing up and overcoming poverty. That's the place that I look at it. And I was listening to an amazing author, of course, I'm going to blank on his name, that was talking about poverty from the perspective of the rich, of the wealthy. And he was really breaking down like the utility of poverty. And I had never thought of it that way, that if you keep people poor, you can easily extract from them. And so we talk about this block of poor people, but there are a whole host of industries that profit profoundly from poor people, check cashing, banks and overdraft fees, slum lords. They don't have to they don't have to do the the maintenance of the properties, but they charge just a little bit less rent. And they make incredibly higher profits, higher than you would in an upscale property. I I learned, I just sat and listened to him for a while and he talked about the utility of poverty. And it was amazing. Poverty, I think in the last 40 years, rates of poverty have increased so much in the Western world. And And at a time where absolute rates of poverty in the emerging economies has actually lessened. That's not to say that there aren't massive amounts of poverty, let's say, in India, which is now like the fifth largest economy, or in China, right, that there are. But in in the West, we have poverty is different now. Historically, if you were poor, you just didn't eat. You can tell how poor somebody is, let's say, in America or in the UK, but how fat they actually are. If you're looking at it, poverty now with 19th century eyes it's odd yeah people have some level of material things nobody is starving that's not to say that they're not malnourished they can still be malnourished but still be overweight and i think the fact that rates of inequality are going through the roof it it is something where i think we need to recalibrate somebody who is poor and it isn't just through money in your bank account, but it is opportunities, having those good decisions, having those potentially put in front of you, isn't it? And I would also Mm -hmm. say it is the ability to withstand, right? That Mm. to me in in the Western world, are you a palm tree that the storm can blow and you're still going to stand? We see it in Houston when we had Hurricane Harvey, right? Um, Poor people go to the shelter. We saw it in Katrina. Poor people went to the Superdome. Their children may be raped in the Superdome. There may not be power. There may not be, like, like your one problem becomes two problems, becomes five problems. That's not where rich people went. When there's a hurricane in Houston, rich people go stay with their rich friend that lives in Atlanta, in, in Austin a couple hours away. Their car is in good enough condition to get them there. 
They can pay for the gas. They can pay for the food. It's the ability to withstand and not have problems compound. You can't afford the tags on your car. So the cops pull you off at oh, over and they arrest you. So now you're in jail over the weekend. So you lost your job. So now you get evicted because you get, it's that circular yeah. thing that, that is the definition of Western poverty. It isn't, mm -hmm. it isn't in the, it isn't sleeping on the streets, though we do have our share of homelessness on the rise, but like the working poor experience is one of vulnerability. Right. And that, that that is the challenge. I'm not vulnerable to a storm because I have some place to go. I have the resources to avoid the storm. It's being unable. You're good at this stuff, aren't you? You're good at this stuff. <laughs> and my, you reminded me that Hurricane Katrina put to the end my grandfather's marriage. Okay. Yeah. How's number one? Yeah. He didn't go to the Superdome. He went to the Four Seasons, I forget which hotel he went to, and he and his wife were airlifted out of there. I think he ended, I think ended up yeah. in Houston. And had a lot. He got his FEMA money, and my grandfather was not broke, hence he was in a nice hotel. Yeah. And his wife said, okay, so we need to buy X and Y and Z with the FEMA money. And he says, no, we need to save this money for a rainy day. And she said, if this is not the definition of a rainy day. <laughs> it's pouring. Said, Man, you're too mean. Are gone. It just it really struck me about the decisions that people make. And uh, yeah, the, the analogy of the rainy day. If yeah. Katrina is not a rainy day and you, but he was of a different generation, a different mindset where mm -hmm. you get given something, you got to save that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she says, Man, you're too mean. You're mean. 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 Yeah, I just, yeah, I think it was really funny. Harvey was a really, actually it was Ike. I think it was Ike. Yeah, right after Katrina. When Katrina happened, there was all of this discussion of why didn't people leave? Why did they stay there? They knew that they were in a low-lying area. They knew. And then just a, a short time later, we had a hurricane threat in Houston. And... People were trapped on the freeway. We drove to Austin. It took us 24 hours to drive a three-hour trip. Austin is three hours from Houston. It wow. took 24 hours. People's cars died on the freeway. People ran out of gas on the freeway. It was horrible. We had small children in the car. We had to jump the medium. We were in an SUV. We had to jump the medium to, to exit, to go to the bathroom and get food. It was horrible. And we were in a fancy SUV with our American Express cards. And it was terrible for us. And it was so humbling, Royfield. It was so humbling that you said, why didn't those poor people leave? They don't have any friends from college that live in Austin. Mm -hmm. They don't have any. Their whole community, their family, their network is in the same area under the same stress and under the same challenge. And we are so judgmental. Again, they didn't have the same suite of options that we had. And then the, just a few short weeks later, we were put, we were all put in the situation that they were in with 50x the resources that they had. And we were struggling to get out of that situation. So I think there's a mercy. There's a patience that we have to have with people who are doing the best they can 
with the ingredients on their table. And it's very easy as you sit eating your steak and potatoes and lobster to tell people that are eating chips and pop what they need to do. See, what they need to do is this and that and the other. I'm not a fan of turf and surf. <laughs> no, just not. I'm just not. I don't like the surf. That's why we're here. Not, not for lobsters, not really for me. I'm a man of the people. <laughs> don't eat that lobster. You know what I mean? I'm allergic to shellfish, so I don't eat lobster either. I am, I guess that makes me common. But I'm a woman of all of the people. How about that? Mm -hmm. I used to think that having an affinity for the poor was super noble and super um, altruistic. And then I realized, no, you need to understand people. And you don't really understand the, the poor if you don't understand the rich. I want you to be a man of the people, but I want you to be a man of all the people. Because that's how you figure out, that's how you, that's where you, how you figure out where the bodies are buried. The best argument I ever heard for a fair distribution of wealth is this guy with money says, you know what? If everybody has a little bit of money, I'm safer. I said, I'm really selfish. I want to get from A to B in life and not to be robbed, not to be taken advantage of. And he says, I'm really selfish. That's why I'm a socialist. Uh-huh. The best way for me to look after me and my own is to make sure that everybody has a little something and nobody's coming after me and my own. Desperation is catastrophic to a society. And unfortunately, in the United States, I think, I hope we haven't jumped the shark. I hope there's time to to reel it back. But you cannot undereducate half of your populace for decades and think that doesn't have a consequence. And so... We've produced people to work in Walmart. (laughs) We agree, right? But you have, the only megaphone that I have is is my various little podcasts and whatever. And I'm, if I add up the amount of people that listen to them, eh, there's a decent amount, right? But it's not a two-way conversation. You stand in front of these people. So even though my voice might go in a month, to more people than you. It's not a two-way conversation. You have the ability. You stand in front of those CEOs, CFOs, all the the great and the good and whatever. How do you know that you're making a change? Before you get back on that plane and fly back to Houston, right, and you've had a nice two days because they put you in a nice hotel as well in, let's say, Seattle, you're feeling good. You ring home. To, to hubby, and you're enumerated well because you're good. How do you know that instead of just feeling good, you actually done good? So this is going to be a wildly dissatisfying answer. It's not my business. I divorced myself from the outcome of my work some time ago. The nature of my work is I'm telling people that they need to release the stories that animate them. Stories they've been taught their whole lives. Things they may believe to the core of their soul. I come along and say, yeah, a woman that's four foot nine can be the boss. Yeah, that black guy can really run this entire project. You don't really have to hold his hand like he's a child. Yeah, you can really recruit at schools that are different 
than the same schools you've recruited at for the last 20 years. I'm the one that's coming in and telling them to release their stories that no longer serve them. I take an honest seeker approach. It's very biblical. I throw the seed out. Some of the seed is going to fall on really fertile ground and people are going to pick up what I'm putting down and they're going to run with it. Some people, it is rock and they are going to be completely resistant. And some people are going to need a little time. They may reflect on something I said three months from now, six months from now, in the concert of some other occurrence. So it's my job to put out the seed, but it's not my job to determine if it grows or not. And that's how I stay sane. DEI has a very high level of burnout. And that is because people take it personally when somebody in your audience doesn't receive what you have to say. I don't truly care if you receive it or not, because I know someone in that audience will. And so I only take responsibility for putting out the best possible information for it to be well supported, for it to be well articulated. That's my job. But whether or not you want to be inclusive, we want to continue to be out and out racist. It's, that's not my business. That's yours. Was Rhythm of the Night held up some 30 odd, 40, 40 years later? Is that, that still a banger? Eldebarge is one of the most talented writers, singers, arrangers. And it is really amazing. I listened to some music today and I'm like, is this music going to hold up the way that music did? Will we be singing songs about booty popping 30 years from now, the way we sing Rhythm of the Night or the way we sing Love Me in a Special Way? I don't know. We'll sing, we sing Rhythm of the Night. You sang Rhythm of the Night. Sing, sing us a line from Rhythm. I absolutely will not. You don't pay me enough, Rayfield Brown. <laughs> we'll work for food. <laughs> well, I think it's a line. It's just a lovely way to end the podcast. Oh, come on. The better is love me in a special way. What more can I say? Love me now. Wow. That's what we all need to do. I love that line. Love me in a special way. Don't love me like you love everybody else. Get to know me and love me in the way that I need to be loved. What if we did that to all the people? Just love them in the special way. Take the time to love them in the ways they need to be loved. I'll take that. Tell us about your book, then we're going to go. My book, it's a clubhouse story, kind of, right? Oh. I met Adam Grant. I met Mika Brzezinski. I met Kat Cole. I met all these incredible people who um, helped me. And Adam specifically was really instrumental in me getting my book deal. And you t we talked earlier about possibilities and options. And to be honest with you, I, it never even occurred to me that I would be able to traditionally publish a book story is they don't give black women book deals and that's not a, a, a ridiculous story the odds the, the statistics are not healthy let's just say that they're not an impressive healthy who should obama had a book first lady 
So did Oprah. I don't know that we're all in the same. Yeah, don't we, count. We I don't, don't count. all shop at the same stores. We don't all shop at the same stores. So there's a story of what was possible and what wasn't possible. And I, I quite frankly had this in the like impossible category. I did. I was like, eh, that's not going to happen. Who cares what this 50-something-year-old black woman in Houston has to say? No, who cares? But turns out I was wrong, right? And Adam saw something in me. Um, you asked earlier, could you be really friends? Can you really find friends on Clubhouse? And he's become one of my, like, a dear friend. And he is, he created that opportunity for me to be exposed to literary agents. And we sold the book. And it comes out Q1 of 2024. And the book is called Indivisible. And it is about just like what we need to do to live and work and figure out how to be together. And I can't wait for people to read it. There you go. Denise Hamilton, thank you for coming on to Brown People. Now, here, the very last question. Yeah. One word answer. Okay. You said you can have friends from Clubhouse. Who's a better friend, me or Adam? Oh my gosh. One word that's, answer. Oh my gosh is not a one word answer. That's like asking me to pick which finger I like better. I like them all, Royfield. They're no. they're all valuable. They're all essential. I will Everybody I knows your favorite finger is a thumb. Everybody knows. It is that. not. <laughs> the thumb is not not even a finger. It's see, see, see how much go. see how much debate we have even in between fingers. No. It's a ridiculous question. It's a ridiculous question. But you are my dear friend, even though we've never sat physically in the same place. That I count you. I count true. you among my friends in the world. You make me more worldly and cosmopolitan, too, because you've been everywhere all over the world. And I'm so glad to know you. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for coming on the show. You've been a total star. Tell everybody what the book's called again so they can actually get their Amazon pre-orders in. Yes, it's indivisible, just like the the Pledge of Allegiance. People might have missed it. Tell us about the company that you run, because I was having a look at the website, and there's a whole load of content on there. There, there was a video there about looking after even elderly parents. I was like, okay, which is something which is now becoming a thing for me and whatever, so I'm going to make time and I'll watch that. So tell everybody about that website, then we can say goodbye. Okay, so my first company is Watch Her Work. And it's literally watch her work. Like it's videos that give professional advice for um, women from other women. I interviewed hundreds of women and captured their best advice and organized it so that you have the information. I don't think you shouldn't have to have powerful friends to have powerful information. So I wanted to take the wisdom of my friends and create a repository of that information. And we're launching a new company called All Hands that is a training company around workplace issues, workforce development, succession planning, leadership development, all of that great stuff, all hands. So I'm out here in these streets, Royfield. I'm just trying to make a, I'm trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. I'm trying to make good on- you mean in these streets? You're in the French Quarter in a nice hotel in New Orleans. I'm in the Virgin Hotel, so I'm feeling a little bit closer to the British experience mm. than I normally felt. But, but yeah, like I'm just trying to make these immigrant parents proud. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.